Good morning. Well, for those of you who don't know me, my name's Casey Nixon. My family used to be a part of First City Church. Rick and Taryn are good friends of mine. They're huge people in my life. And so obviously on Thursday when I got the call, you know, we prayed for Taryn and then said, what can I do to help? And they said, well, by the way, we could use somebody on Sunday, to which I said, okay. And Rick said, you know that's in two days. And I said, no, I didn't. Hold on a second. Okay. No, I can do that. God can do that, right? God can do that. So uh, because it's a little bit of short notice, I have to ask for a little bit of extra grace, all right? I'm going to try to keep the slide straight. I'm going to try to keep it moving in a logical format so everything makes sense, but I'm going to need a little bit of extra grace from you, and I think we're going to have to invite God in, especially today, because you don't care what I have to say anyway. You want to hear from him. So will you join me? Invite him in. Father, thank you for this morning. Lord, as we come before the throne, we're so grateful for this time to meet in such a beautiful place, to have music to draw us in, to have the warmth and comfort uh, of a building, Lord, of a beautiful day. We don't want to take that for granted, but we want to hear from you today, Lord. We pray that you will inhabit this place, that your spirit will fall fresh and new upon us. Lord, that you'll illuminate your word to our hearts that you'll speak the truth into each one of us, Lord, that you have for us today. Father, make less of me and more of you. They don't want to hear from me, Lord. They came to see you and experience you, and I pray that they would do that today. Father, for your glory, for the glory of your son Jesus, we ask these things. Amen. Well, August is uh, where we begin our 21 days of prayer and fasting. So if you're new to this church, it's just a time to reflect, to kind of re-cage on what's important, to kind of remember that kingdom work is the only work that lasts into eternity. Everything else will burn up. It will wash away. Everything else we do uh, really doesn't amount to anything. And so we want to make sure that our efforts and our focus in our life as believers is caged on. The Lord. So we take a little bit of time to just kind of stop and reflect and, and regroup and uh, tighten our shot group for those of you with a military background. That's what we're trying to do. And so we always have a theme. Every year when this comes around, we have a theme. And, and this year, it's the names of God. And so we're going to talk about why that's important. And so when I was discussing it with Rick, I, I said, okay, I, I got that. What do you want me to do? He said, whatever God puts on your heart, and so after some prayer and some seeking the Lord, I think today we're going to really just, just a primer for talking about why are the names of God even important and why should you care? And I hope at the end, bottom line up front, I hope at the end of today's uh, time together, you want to get into God's word and discover who he is fresh and new. That's my goal today, okay? That's where we're headed with all this. So kind of interesting for those of you who have traveled a, a little bit around the world, if you go to somewhere like uh, Great Britain, you go to London, my friends there, they don't say, uh, I am John, or I am Tony, or I'm Mary, or I'm Beth. They say, I'm called Roland. I'm called John. I'm called Mark. The idea for them is that your name does not encompass who you are. But in America, we don't say it that way, do we? We say, I am. I am. I'm Casey. I'm Rick. I'm Taryn. Because for us, it goes back to probably some of the ancient history. We think that our name encompasses who we are. I hope that when somebody meets me and they hear my name, it will eventually invoke in them this idea that I am a follower of Jesus Christ. 
I am a lover of God. I am the husband of one wife. I am a faithful friend. I am a helicopter pilot. All those things are true about me, and they're encompassed in my name because my name represents who I am. And the same is true in ancient Hebrew thought. So if you go back into, uh, well, really from modern day back, but you go all the way back into biblical times, and you were to look at Hebrew culture, they have this idea that if you don't know the name for a thing, you don't really understand the thing. Because in the name is encompassed the meaning of the thing. So if you cannot name the thing, you cannot actually understand the thing. Now, you can see this a little bit because originally, if you go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis 2, God calls all the animals to come in front of Adam so that Adam can name them and give them their essence, give them what they are. In fact, God says once he names them that name, so shall they be. And in Hebrew culture, names have always been immensely important. Now, the question then becomes what's in a name? So there's a little bit of an education that goes on with this. So one of the principles you have to understand about history and why it's so important to us is because God always speaks to his people in a culturally appropriate way in a language that they understand. God always speaks to his people in a culturally appropriate way in a language that they understand. He's not trying to make it confusing and he's not trying to hide from anybody. Okay? Now, if you need a little bit of evidence for this, all you have to do is turn to uh, the book of Acts. In the first couple of chapters, there's this uh, festival of meetings called Pentecost. It's right after Jesus' death, about uh, 45 days after Jesus' death, they're meeting. And the Holy Spirit falls upon the disciples. They begin to speak in languages that can be understood by all the people who have traveled to Jerusalem for the feast. If you've read your Bible, you know that story, and they speak the truth of the gospel in a language that the people understand. God always wants to communicate in a way that people understand if they're truly seeking to understand. All right? So we have to go back, and we have to understand a little bit about the culture and a little bit about the language of the first century in order to understand how God communicated to his people. Make sense? All right. So, a couple of things. The first is we often use the word Lord to refer uh, to God or to Jesus or to deity in some way. And Lord is not a name, it's a title, it's a position. So uh, we could be the Lord of the manor, the Lord of the house. We could be in the uh, uh, British Parliament and be a Lord or a lady. Lord is a title of position, okay? Now, we often use the word God, and God's not inaccurate, But God is also a position, and in fact, it's more specifically considered to be a position of worship, of worship. So whatever we worship is our God. And in our culture, we've made a really good uh, job of putting all kinds of things above the one true creator God and making it our own God. We have gods of money and gods of sex and gods of power and gods of performance and gods of jobs. We've made gods out of our possessions. We've made gods out of what we do and how we're seen on social media. We've made gods out of all kinds of things. And whether we call it that or not, that's what it is because a, a position of worship is something that gets our time, our attention, our devotion, our thought, our resources, the thing we sacrifice for, the thing we make adjustments for, the thing we elevate above other things. That is our God. 
all right? So when we use the word Lord and we use the word God, we're not referring to a particular person by name. We're referring to titles and positions, positions of worship or titles of authority. So far, you're making sense, right? Good. But there's a little housekeeping note here at the bottom of the screen. If you don't know this, I'm just going to help you out a little bit. As you read God's word, we translated it from Hebrew in the Old Testament and Greek in the New Testament. So we had to make some adjustments to get it to fit into English and make it readable, okay? Now, if you see the word Lord and it's all lowercase or it's a capital L with lowercase letters, that's often the title for Adonai, and it often means Lord as a position of power, ownership, authority. That's Lord as in a title, Lord, okay? Now, if you see the word Lord in your Bible, and it's a capital L, and the O-R-D are also in uppercase, but small uppercase letters, so the whole thing's in uppercase, that is actually the translation of the letters Y-H-W-H, often pronounced in English as Yahweh, which many of you know is the proper name of God, and we're going to get to that in a minute, but I just want you to know, when you read, if you see Lord in all lowercase, that's a title of position, and when you see Lord in all uppercase, that's the name Yahweh, okay? And we're going to talk more about that, but I want you to know what you're reading, all right? It's very important when you read that. All right. Names have meaning. Now, names have meaning, and I can show you how you know this, and I can show you why this is important, because again, I don't want you to take my word for anything. I know nothing. I am nobody. Don't rely on me. But in this word, God's truth tells us that names are important. And we're going to start with human names because it's way less important than God's names, but it will show the principle by which God works in the world, okay? When people have a God encounter in the Bible, they often get a new name. And that name reflects their new destiny or their new position. The name is the essence of the person. And so, in fact, in ancient culture, when we named children, we didn't name children like, like we do. We often think about things like, well, what does that rhyme with? How are the kids going to make fun of them? Or, oh, I know somebody by that name. I'm never naming my kid that name, right? We have these different things. Oh, I like the sound of that. Oh, it's got a ring. Oh, I like that. We pair it with this other name. Uh, if you're in the South, you have to pick two names that go together so they can be called by them both because apparently one's not enough. Uh, there's just different conventions that we have. But in ancient world, it wasn't like that. They named somebody based on the destiny that they perceived for that person. And it happens throughout the Bible. I just chose a few examples here. Abram. Everybody knows the story of Abram. God chose Abram from amongst all the people in the world to create a special race dedicated to him, a race that would become the Jewish people, that would be God's chosen possession. And when he does that, when he makes that promise with Abram, he changes his name to Abraham to reflect that new reality. His wife Sarai becomes Sarah, the same thing to reflect her new reality as the mother of God's chosen people. Jacob. Jacob wrestles with an angel. It's believed by many scholars that this was a Christophany, just for those of you who are scholars, a Christophany is an appearance of Jesus before Jesus came to earth in the New Testament. So Jesus has always existed. He's always been in heaven with God. Did he ever show up before? Well, they kind of think this might be an instance where Jacob wrestled with Jesus, or he wrestled with an angel of the Lord. Either way, Jacob refused to relent until the Lord blessed him. And the Lord changed his name to Israel, and he becomes the 
the next in line to really father this group of people, the 12 tribes, that would be God's 12 chosen possessions to show the world who he is. It's a pretty neat responsibility. And because of that, he gets renamed with Israel. Naomi is an interesting one because Naomi means pleasant. She was born in Bethlehem. Her people are from Bethlehem. We know that's going to be the birthplace of our Savior in about 2,000 years, right? And so Naomi in the book of Ruth, she has a difficult life. A lot of us could relate. She lost her husband. She lost her sons. She was destitute. There was a famine on the land. Life was not going well for Naomi. And so she returns to Bethlehem. She returns to the land of her people. She hears that God has blessed them with food. She thinks this is maybe her answer. And so she goes. But when she arrives, they are excited to see her and greet her. And she says, don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. For the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. She believes that her name should be changed based on her encounter with God. And so in this instance, she actually changes her own name based on her God encounter. Now, there are many, many others. We can jump to the New Testament. Simon. Simon is a disciple. If you're watching The Chosen, uh, we binge it in our house. I've seen every episode about a hundred times, I think. And, and, you know, you can just see Simon and you get everything about Simon and then you just read it and you're like, oh, I see it. Well, the Lord renames him Peter, which in Greek was Cephas. And we know that that means rock. And remember, Jesus told him, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. His new name reflects his new position because of his God encounter. The list goes on and on, but you can certainly not leave out Saul, who has a, an experience with the risen Lord, sees God in a vision, sees Jesus in a vision from heaven in a blinding light. He becomes or changes from a persecutor of the church to a champion of the church, he goes from stoning those proclaiming the name of the Lord to defending the church at the expense of his life. And that change necessitates a new name. Now, it's kind of cool. This can even take place in our culture. I have a friend whose name is Matthew Christopher. Matthew means gift of God. Christopher means Christ bear. He goes by his middle name because he wants the whole world to know that he is a Christ bear. I think that's pretty cool. Names have meaning, and in the name should encompass something about us. And I hope that when people hear your name, they equate it to Jesus follower. I hope when they hear your name, they equate it to wonderful husband or wife, father or mother. I hope they equate it to the positive attributes that we get when we follow the Lord. But it actually goes on because when we call God, we don't usually refer to him by name. When we refer to God uh, up in heaven, the Father, we usually call him God, right? And when we refer to God uh, on earth in, in human form, what do we usually call him? Jesus. And when we refer to God working in an unseen way, working in the earth, we see his effects and his inputs. We know he's there, but we don't see him in an embodied form. What do we call that? The Holy Spirit, right? Sure, absolutely. And again, we're referring to something very distinct. Everybody knows or has a picture of what we mean. But we're not still calling him by name. 
It's not all that he is. We're just talking about the form in which we're experiencing God. So let's look at the Bible today. Let's open it up and let's find out what God says about himself. And let's learn a little bit about that, all right? So if we go all the way back to the beginning, all the way back to the very front of the book, remember the book's a circle, right? I've said this many times. It's a circle. It's not a linear line through history where we leave behind the past and we move into the future. It's a circle. Jesus is the center of the circle and everything flows back and forth from Jesus out to the circle, back to the middle. All right? It's like a bicycle wheel with spokes. Jesus is the hub and time runs around the outside rim. Okay? So, beginning to end, front to back, it's all got to work together, all right? Now, if we go back to the beginning, we see very beginning, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was out form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, most of you probably know this verse, right? You've heard this before. It's a pretty famous story. In fact, one of the, the cool things is... If we insert the Hebrew, which was the original text in here, we gain a tremendous level of understanding about this passage. Okay? Now I'm going to show you. Remember, God always speaks to people in a culturally appropriate way, in a language they understand. We believe that Moses, Moshe, wrote Genesis. All right? Moses, one of the certainly early patriarchs of God's people. And this is what it would read with the Hebrew. It says, in the beginning, Elohim. Elohim created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Ruah, it's very important in a minute, the Ruah was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, I'm just going to break this down for you for a second because it's going to become important. Elohim, the E-L, L, always represents God. But it represents God as a position, not as a name, all right? So over 2,000 times, El, or Elohim, is used in the Bible to refer to God. Now, a handful of times it refers to pagan gods or other gods, but it is a position of God, and it is the highest God, okay? So when we use El, we're using the highest God in the, whatever we're talking about. If there are multiples or if there's a singular, it is the highest one, okay? Now, it's going to become important because Moses did this very, very specifically. He's building an argument. So Elohim. Now, kind of interesting, just kind of a note here, the I am, think cherubim, seraphim. The I am tells us that it's plural. Now, that's curious. It's plural. Now, scholars say, and rightly so, that it's plural because it's the royal we. When we use terms of great deference due to respect, when we uh, uh, talk about people that are far above us, we often refer to them in the plural. It's the royal we. Many languages do this. But as a believer on this side of Jesus Christ, at least 4,000 years removed, what do we know about pluralness and God? It's the first sign of the Trinity. In Genesis 1.1, 1, 1, God's already planted a seed to let us know that the Trinity is coming. He's in there. You get to Genesis 2, and God says, let us make man in our image. 
Yeah, let us. Now that's the royal we. Us can be one person when we talk about the royal we. It doesn't have to be plural. But what's plural about God? He's living in community as the Trinity. Isn't that cool? It's buried right there in the word for you to find. And God's left these things all over the Bible. All over the Bible, there are all these nuggets of truth that if you dig just below the surface, Jesus said, it's so that those who hear will understand and those who seek will find. If you dig just a little bit, his truth is buried in here. Now, Ruha is a little bit different. It's not really about a name. Ruha is about a condition. So Ruha means spirit or wind or breath. Now, this is important because the highest God, the great God, is hovering in spirit, wind, and breath over the waters. Tracking? Okay, it's going to become important. It's going to come back around. Now, in Genesis 2, Moses refines his argument. He starts from greater or lesser to greater, from wider to more specific. He goes from the generic, the greatest God, to a very specific God. He says this, these are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created in the days that the Lord God, notice it's all capitals in your Bible. The Lord God made the earth and the heavens, Genesis 2-4. If we insert the Hebrew here, this is what it would look like. These are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created in the day that Yahweh, that Yahweh Elohim made the earth and the heavens. See, now Moses has said it's not just the greatest God, but the greatest God is the God of the Hebrew people. The greatest God, Elohim, has a name, and it's Yahweh. And that shows up in Genesis 2. Now, Yahweh encompasses God. It's all that he is, just like my name encompasses me. It is what I am. It is who I am. This is true. However, with our finite minds, we can never comprehend all that is encompassed in the name of God. Amen? We can never figure it out. We are not smart enough. We do not have the language. There are not words to describe all that God is. Okay? So, names reflect meaning. And we have to make sure that we're using the right name to understand the meaning that we're ascribing to God at the time. Because Lord is a title or position. God is a position of worship. When we refer to Jesus or God or the Holy Spirit, we're correctly referring to the right person, but we're not calling him by name. He has a name. It's revealed in Genesis 2 for the very first time. Y-H-W-H. Now, there's something else that's very, very important to understand. And that is, God has always had a plan to be in communion with his people. And so this is a good time. I think we'd be remiss if we didn't just note that in the beginning, remember the Ruha. It's the spirit, the wind, the breath. It's hovering over the waters. Okay? That's what Ruha means. Or the Ruha. So, 
This is kind of interesting. We get to Genesis 3. Now, if you remember the Genesis story, Adam and Eve are in the garden. They're tending to God's creation. They're sort of the shepherds and farmers and caretakers of the garden. Uh, There's an incident where there's some fruit involved, and the whole thing turns south, and we're in big trouble. You guys kind of remember that? Uh, It's in there. You should read it if not because it's pretty, pretty crazy. Uh, But basically, sin enters the world, and because of that, Adam and Eve realize that they are now sinful, broken people, and they go to hide from God, like many of us. In their sin and their shame, they don't want to be seen and known by God, and so they hide. And this is where that takes place, and this is what the Bible says. It says, and they, this being Adam and Eve, they heard the sound of the Lord God, that's Yahweh Elohim, walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And again, if we insert the Hebrew, this is what we would see. And they heard the sound of Yahweh Elohim. It's a very specific person. It's not just they heard the sound of a God. They heard the sound of Yahweh walking in the garden in the Ruach. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh Elohim. Why is that important? Well, it becomes important to understand, again, the whole book. If you want to understand the whole circle, that becomes an important part. Here's why. How did God interact with Adam in the Ruha? That's what the Bible says. However, if you go to 1 Timothy 6.16, Paul writes, no one has ever seen God. Who does that include? Everyone. No one. Nobody has seen God. That's what he says. You go to Exodus 33.20, even in the Old Testament, Moses is talking to God, and we're going to look at that more in a minute. Moses is talking to God, and he says, I want to see you as a man sees a friend. And God says, you can't. No one has ever seen me and lived. So how did Adam walk with God? We did it in the spirit. But why is that important? Because that was always God's plan, to interact with man in the spirit. And in fact, that's why Jesus comes. He comes back to make a way for God to return to his people. He makes a way for sin to be erased so that God can come back to earth in the spirit and live with his people inside of his people. That was always God's plan. Check this out. This is what Jesus told his disciples in John 14. It's one of my favorite passages. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And we could have a whole Sunday on that. Maybe next time I come, we'll have a whole Sunday on that. But go past that. And he says, and I, if you love me, I will. That's how that works. If you love, it's conditional. If you love me, Then you will keep my commandments, and in return, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. Now, that word spirit of truth, that's in Greek, so it's not the same word that's used in the Old Testament because it's a different root language. But the word in Greek would be pneuma, and pneuma has almost the same meaning as ruha. 
It's a moving air, rushing wind. Uh, it's the Greek and Latin root of pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit. A lot of medical terms use the word pneuma. For those of you in that field, you know that. So that idea right here is almost the same idea in Greek as it is in Hebrew. It's the ruha, and I will send you another helper to be with you, even the spirit of truth. Whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. Isn't that cool? That's always been God's plan. He always wanted to have a deeply personal relationship with his creation. He always wanted to inhabit the place of his people. Always. But it all got kind of messed up. And sometimes our lives get kind of messed up. But that doesn't stop God from his loving desire to connect with us. He's not put off by the messed up part. What he did was he began to then reveal himself to humanity through his word over and over and over again. Little glimpses all throughout his word until he showed up. And what many people believe, many scholars say, is the full embodiment of his nature as a human form. Here's what I mean by that. Let me paint you a really simple picture. If you hold up a diamond, now I've never held a big diamond, but I can see it. You hold it up and you hold it up to the light, the facet reflects that beauty of the diamond, right? And when we turn it, we catch the next facet and the next and the next, and the light continues to reflect in a fresh and new way. The beauty of the diamond is seen fresh and anew with each turn and each angle we view the diamond. God is the same way as we get to know him better and better and better as reveals himself more and more and more throughout the Bible. We get a fuller, more beautiful picture of who God is. That's why the names become so important because the names are part of how he reveals who he is. The names have meaning and they reveal parts of God that we might not see otherwise. Now, he's also revealed in his actions. We're going to talk a little bit more about that at the end. God's actions and his names reveal his character so we begin to know and begin to fall in love with the God who created us and the God who watches over us. All right? So that's kind of why names are uh, important. That's why this really matters. Now we're going to get a little deeper. Everybody keeping up so far? All right. I don't want to put anybody to sleep. I did have a pastor friend once who used to say, I like it when people sleep in church. I'm glad they feel at peace. I'm like, I kind of take it the other way, John. I sort of feel like I'm not doing my job very well different perspectives, I guess, facets of the diamond, I suppose. All right, here's the, the crux of the situation. The ultimate crux here today is God wants you to know him. He wants you to know him. He's not trying to hide from you. But listen, there's a, a truth I've found in life. God is a whisperer, not a yeller. Now, I'm not going to tell you he's never yelled into somebody's life to get their attention above the chaos and the noise. I'm not saying that. But what I'm telling you is his natural way of dealing with his creation is to sit and wait, not to chase and run. 
and it's to speak softly so that the only people who hear, the only people who really experience are those who seek him out and put him first because that's what God wants to be in our lives. But he's right there for the taking. You can have as much God as you want. He'll give you all that you can handle and then some. Your cup will overflow. I promise you, he's right there. And he's trying to tell you gently and softly who he is. And some of that is revealed through what he does in the pages of Scripture. And some of that is revealed in his name as he tells you who he is. All right? So... The different names of God are basically ways that he successively reveals his character and attributes or properties to his people. Now, this is a little bit of an issue of semantics, so if you're not a Bible nerd like me, you can tune this next uh, 30 seconds out. But the problem with calling them God's attributes implies that we are attributing them to God which is all that we have to do to an idol, right? A mute object that we pray or worship to. We have to attribute things to. But our God is a creator God. He is the God above all gods, and he already has those things. They're inherent to him, so they're really more like properties of God than attributes of God. But in English, it's a kind of a fine distinction. Is everybody okay with that? So we'll just say it's the properties of God, the innate characteristics that God possessed from before time began. Okay, that's what we're talking about. Jehovah is not a divinely revealed name of God. God never called himself Jehovah. In fact, it's a Jewish uh, transcription from the early 6th century, 7th century, because it was not a word in Hebrew. So when you said it, it was obvious what you were saying because it wasn't a word that was spoken in any other part of the Hebrew language, but it wasn't his name. So it was okay. Does that make sense? So when you read Jehovah, you're really reading Adonai Yahweh, Lord, and his name. The name above all names with power and authority over all. That's what you're reading in Jehovah. Adonai Yahweh or Yahweh Adonai. And it's why, if you look in your Bible, depending on what translation you use, if you have an NLT or an NIV or an ESV, you won't see the word Jehovah in there. Because Jehovah is not the exact translation of that phrase. Does that make sense? You will find it in the King James. Uh, I won't digress into why that is, but um, it's also found in the Latin Vulgate. For those of you who aren't Bible nerds, again, the Vulgate was the first Latin translation, really the first translation out of Greek into the language of the people was the first time that they kind of started this Bible translation into the language of the people. Again, God wants to communicate in people's language so that they understand him. And a guy named Jerome, he went ahead and did that, and that's where it came in, and that's where we begin to find things like Jehovah. All right? Good. The question, though, becomes... God wants you to know him. He wants to reveal himself to you. But how much God do you want? Do you want God or do you just want his blessing? Here's a way to think about this. If I told you we could create heaven on earth, I told you we could erase all of your pains and all of your worries, 
We could erase all of your troubles, all of your financial woes. There would be no stress. There would be nothing to get sick from. There would be no COVID. There would be nothing that day-to-day frustrates human beings. But God would not be there. You still want to go? It's a tough question. Don't feel bad if your immediate response is, kind of, yeah, sounds pretty good. Because uh, it is. It's tough. It's tough to say, nope, I want to be where God is, even if it's pain and suffering and loss and difficulty and triumph. If God's there, I want to be there. That's tough. That's really tough. But that really is the ultimate question for believers. I've heard it phrased this way. If you went to heaven and God wasn't there, would you still want to go? That's kind of what it's about. Is it God that we're seeking after, or is it simply his blessing in our lives? What is it we really want? A lot of people sought after Jesus in the first century. You can read all about it in the Gospels. You can see a little bit of it in the Chosen. They depict it really well, but they sought after him for what they could get. They wanted the blessing. They wanted to see the miracles. It was really about them, and Jesus turned them away. And then there were those who followed after Jesus, whatever the cost, and he welcomed them with open arms. He brought them in and revealed more about God than the last two or three thousand years had ever known. That's pretty cool. So to kind of sum this up, to wrap this up, we're going to look at Exodus 33. If you have a Bible, I highly encourage you to open it to Exodus 33. Uh, I've got some of the verse on screen, so if you don't have a Bible, not to worry. Um, by the way, if you don't have a Bible and you'd like a Bible, don't leave here today until you get one, okay? Find me, find someone on staff. We will make sure that you do not leave without a Bible, okay? Now, Exodus 33. If you look in the beginning of Exodus 33... 33, 1 through 4, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. A lot of ites. It was a land full of ites, okay? So he's going to drive them all out. All the ites will be gone. And he continues... Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Sound like a generation you might, might be familiar with? He says, you refuse to submit to me, you refuse to follow what I've told you, you refuse to do the right thing for the right reason. I am faithful and I cannot lie. I will not renege on my promise. I will clear those people out and I will give you the blessing that I promised you. But I'm not going. Because if I do, I will surely destroy you because you're frustrating. That's what he says. Now, if you continue to read in Exodus 33, I highly encourage you to do that. It's a really awesome story. Uh, Moses says some incredible things uh, about the Lord and about uh, his experience with the Lord. But he, he goes on and he says this. Exodus 33, 15. 
And he, this is, this is Moses, he said, he, Moses, said to him, God, and he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring me up from here. Do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us? So that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth. Isn't it your presence, Lord, that shows everybody that I and your people are different? And if you won't go with us, don't send us because it's not worth going if you won't be there because no one will know that I found favor in your sight because your presence is not with me. That's what Moses said. So the question becomes, do you want God or do you just want God's blessing? Because if you want God, you've got to get to know God, which means you've got to fall in love with God. And he's found right here in the pages of Scripture, anywhere between the table of contents and the uh, concordance in the back. Take your pick. Anywhere in there you can find God and God revealed in a massively amazing way. He'll show you his character. He'll teach you all about himself. He'll give you a million reasons to fall in love. And then your heart will say, I don't care what heaven's like. If God's not there, I don't want to be there. I want to go where God goes. And if where God goes is to the inner city, then I want to go. And if God goes through fire, God goes through loss and pain and death and suffering and the ending of relationships and the diagnosis I didn't see coming, if God's in that, then I want to be in that because I love God and I trust him. But you can't do that if you don't know him. And his names reveal his character. All right? So... Here's my, my uh, encouragement or my charge to you if you're a new Christian, if you're not uh, real familiar with the Bible, you don't really know about this Jesus thing, you may be not even sure that Jesus is the way you want to go, I get it. I've been there. I get it. Pick up the book of John and start reading. The book of John will reveal to you God in the flesh. It will reveal to you who Jesus Christ is. It's an amazing book. It will turn you on and you will be so excited on fire, you won't put it down when you get to the end, I promise. But don't just jump to Luke. That's the natural uh, bent. Everybody goes right to Luke because it's the next, next kind of book before. And they start reading and they go back to Mark and Matthew and they kind of read the whole Gospels. I wouldn't do that. I go from John and I go to Hebrews. That's what I do. Because Hebrews will connect for you the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it will whet your appetite to get into the Old Testament and figure out who God is. Now, if you're... If you're a, a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're really learning how to kind of discover who God is, then here's my encouragement to you. Get a good um, commentary. Get a good commentary. And when you start reading your Bible, start digging into the words and the phrases and the culture and the history that surrounds that communication from God because it will inform so much more about what you're reading so that you can rightly interpret it and apply it to your life today. If you're a seasoned saint and you have a habit of reading your Bible, you already have your favorite commentary, you're already nodding your head to all these things, then here's my encouragement to you. Start journaling. Start writing down everywhere you see God show up, everything you see God do, every characteristic of God that you find in the Bible, every name that he uses, every place that he reveals himself, write it down. 
And when times get tough, you can look back through that journal and you can see what's true about God. It's not just what you feel, it's what you know. And you can know that God is faithful and God is majestic and powerful and glorious. He loves you more than anything else. And he wants to redeem you so that you can spend the rest of your life for the rest of eternity with him in glory. That's what he wants. And it's all right here. If you don't have one of these, don't leave without it. If you have one of these, fall in love with it. Wear it out. You can see mine's getting pretty worn out. It's got some scratches and scrapes and probably some coffee stains. Wouldn't surprise me, but it's mine and I love it. And I hope you'll love yours too. Will you join me in prayer?